Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 51 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today, I'm joined by Mary Penner, a certified genealogist and author. Um, hello, Mary. Hi, Kenyatta. <laughs> Welcome. Haven't seen you in quite some time. Yeah. So it's good to see your face. So I always ask this question to a uh, genealogist, of course. So my first question for you, Mary, is how did you get started in genealogy? What sparked your interest and what age were you? Well, I was pretty young. I think I, I was probably about 10 years old. Mm. And it just, I, I was thinking about that. It was just sort of a natural instinct, something that I was naturally interested in, history, uh, mm. family. My dad had a very large family. Okay. He had over 30 aunts and uncles. So I had all of these great aunts and uncles that we would routinely visit. And so I was very interested in my large extended family from a very young age and I had an aunt my aunt Dot who's my dad's older sister and she was remarkable at remembering dates names mm. places and so I would interview my aunt about my relatives and I actually created starting from about the age of 10 11 12 a little index cards for every relative mm. that my aunt told me about and I still have those it's a stack of cards <laughs> and so it was just a natural curiosity I, I can't say that there was anything that occurred mm -hmm. that said this is something I'm interested in but uh, I started very 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 young as a child and so you said your dad had a large family um, yes. was your mom's family large as well my mother's family was even larger than my dad's, wow. but they did not live nearby. Okay. Um, they, I, we associated with my, my dad's family more. My mother was one of 13 children, but they scattered around the country, whereas my dad's family all stayed pretty much within the same couple of counties where I grew up. And where did you grow up? Southwestern Missouri. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. I don't think mm -hmm. I've ever been there. What's like a town or something to kind of give me some location I may or may not know near where you grew up? I'm from the town. It's called Nevada, Missouri. It's it's pronounced Nevada. It's spelled like Nevada. But Nevada, Missouri, okay. it's 100 miles straight south of Kansas City. Okay. Okay. So that's Great. it's awesome. western part. And it's not completely south, sort of south central Missouri. Okay. But 
And so growing up, you made these index cards. What was your family's reaction to your interest in genealogy? Did they support you? Were they sort of like, this is weird? Like, how did they react to you interviewing Aunt Dot and having these index cards? No, I mean, it was nothing that was of uh, of particular interest to anyone else in the mm-hmm. family. My my parents were sure fine whatever you can go and I, my aunt and I went to cemeteries we took some field trips some excursions my dad really liked talking about his family mm-hmm. and so i i learned a lot of stories from him it's kind of one of those things that all genealogists reflect back on in their later years when so many of the people we knew in our youth are no longer with us Mm-hmm. And we have that tinge of, why didn't I ask more? Mm-hmm. Uh, why didn't I write that down? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I mean, and, and even people who aren't that interested in genealogy, they, they ponder that, uh, what they missed out just by mm-hmm. being young, by not talking to people that were older. Right. I, I always liked old people, so... I hung out with all of my old relatives. I had no problem with that. So, Yeah. I think for me, at a young age, I didn't have that interest. Mine came in, in law school, but I was always told sort of to kind of stay out of grown folks' business, you know, like the kids, oh, okay. me and my cousins, to go in a separate room while the adults talked. So I had I heard some stories, but I didn't have the curiosity that you had to interview, but I also think I had the fear <laughs> even asking the questions and being denied an answer. But I think that's great that you got started so young in genealogy because you've had so much time to really hone your skills and go back to those index cards and really, you know, teach other folks. So I wanted to get into your career outside of genealogy and then we'll get back into it. But I know you um, were a teacher or you have been a teacher in the past. So how did you get started teaching? Like what made you decide you wanted to do that? You know, for a lot, uh, it wasn't a lifelong ambition to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to be a writer mm. from high school. That's what I was interested in was writing and I wanted to write. And that's why I majored in, majored in English in literature in college. Mm-hmm. And I did work for a publishing company for a while. I was involved in that, that end of it, not doing very much writing, doing more editing more mm-hmm. on the production end of of helping other writers get their work into print and and then circumstances changed I moved uh, to a different state and and I kind of felt like I wanted to change directions with where I was going career wise and I mm-hmm. it was just kind of one of those things what would I be good at what would mm-hmm. I like to do and and I thought I, I have this love of writing, I have a love of literature, I have a love of English. Why don't I share that with others? And so I mm-hmm. went back to school, got a certification in secondary education, and I started teaching high school. Mm. So that's, I was an English teacher, and I, I felt it, it's the most challenging job I've ever had, being a teacher, yeah. And um, but one of the most rewarding. I mean... Mm-hmm. Teachers, you know, I have such admirations for teachers, and I think I think all of us teach, no matter what our professions are, or at least mm-hmm. we have the op- that opportunity, mm-hmm. because I think there's nothing. 
well, I wouldn't say nothing, but I think one of the greatest things we can do for others is to share something that will help them make their lives better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always felt when I was teaching. And it's hard to convey that to teenagers or young adults when I was teaching uh, in the community college or at the university level. It was hard to convey why being able to write a, a coherent sentence is helping them make their lives better. But because some of them really resisted that, and right. we all resist things when we're young. But but I tried to explain to them this is going to help you with your future jobs and things like that, and to to be able to communicate well. Yeah, I understand having to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Some people can't quite figure out how that's going to help them later in life. But um, I would try to convince them it's uh, critical thinking that you're Mm -hmm. going to bring to it, being able to analyze something, those sorts of things. And so it's a bit of a sell, uh, you know, a sales job to teenagers. But, um, But I still really felt like there was value in it. And, and fortunately for, for us English teachers, the same problem was with that messaging of why it's important was happening down in the math wing, too. Uh, so <laughs> students were like, why do I need to know algebra? I'm never going to use this. So, Right. Right. Well, I love the Scarlet Letter, by the way. And yeah, I, you know, so you said it was challenging and rewarding. You know, I feel like with teachers sometimes that they don't, well, not sometimes, they don't get enough credit at all, in my opinion. I still remember um, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Alawalia, who became Ms. Schumacher. Um, and I went to visit her when I graduated from high school and visit her class. And I just have such fond memories of her. And I feel like with teaching, you can make a big impact on someone's life, right? Depending on what's going on in their home life. If their parents are not pushing them for education or something else is going on, school can be a way for them to escape, right? In a yes. sense. And so I admire that you went into the teaching because it's, as you said, challenging and rewarding and very difficult, especially with teenagers and hormones and resistance all at the same time. Mm-hmm. How did you or how would you compare teaching in high school versus uh, university and community college level? Um, those three experiences? Well, the biggest difference is it was kind of a, a kind of a a joke for a lot, you know, a lot of us who taught it have taught at both levels is when you're in high school, not only are you teaching, you're sort of a behavior police as well. Right. You know, in college, I remember thinking I was sitting in my uh, office and I saw some students outside the window and they were smoking. And I thought, I don't have to do anything. They can smoke all they want walking by my room. <laughs> you know, it's like if it was in high school, I'd have to get up and run after them, you know. <laughs> um, so so that's a big difference. You don't have to be behavior police people. They are adults and they may not behave like adults, but th- that we don't, we treat them that way. So. Right. That's interesting. Uh-oh. So getting back to genealogy, because I have a lot of yes. questions about that. So you started at a young age with genealogy, but what made you decide, I want to become a professional genealogist? Well, like most of us, it's a bit of a journey because mm-hmm. I think that may that paradigm may be changing these days with more academic programs aimed from the get-go to people being professional genealogists. But for people of my generation, we don't start out 
in high school, in college, thinking, yes, that's what I'm going to do, be a professional genealogist. So it's it was a bit of a journey. And, and actually, I was thinking about this just recently, and I was working, regular job, and we have a, 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 a genealogy library here mm-hmm. in Albuquerque, and they were open late on Thursday nights. And I worked full time, and I just lived quite close to this library. It was in the downtown area, and I lived and I worked downtown. And so I was close to it, so I decided I was going to pick up this hobby from my youth that I pretty much abandoned for a number of years. Um, and so I decided I was going to pick it up. And um, so I started going to that library, getting more invested in it, and uh, uh, researching my own family some more, becoming familiar with the vernacular of what the genealogy world really was. Mm-hmm. And one, I, I mean, one, one night, it was a Thursday night, I had taken to work with me my notebooks, my notes, my plan, what I was going to work on. And some of my coworkers were going out for whatever reason. They usually didn't, but they decided they were going to go out to get some drinks and hang out that evening. And they, you know, come on, Mary, come with us to the bar or whatever, where they were going. And I, I, I was really tempted, but I thought, no, I have to go to the genealogy library tonight. And so I was thinking, this is really telling about who I am now. I'm becoming obsessed with my genealogical research uh, instead of going out with friends to a bar. But um, And that was sort of the beginning of wanting to really become more involved in that world, in the genealogy world, that access to that local library. And then, you know, life kind of shifted and moved around. I was teaching. I was doing this. I was doing that. And then I had a baby. And um, fortunately, my my husband's an engineer. He had a good job. I quit my job the day she was born Mm. uh, so I could stay home with her for a few years. Then I went back to teaching Mm -hmm. part-time when she was young and during that time, I was continuing to work on my own genealogy research, and I, one day I said to myself, or I think I actually said this out loud, maybe to my husband, I said, if we lived in Salt Lake City, I would become a professional genealogist. And he said, well, we're not moving to Salt Lake City. And I thought, you know what? That's a very limiting mindset. Why do I have to live in Salt Lake City to be a professional genealogist. I'm going to figure out how to be a professional here. And it was just a, a it was about as simple as that. I right. had the opportunity, I had the time to transition from a hobbyist into a professional. And I just, that's what, it was just a mindset shift. And that's what started the process. With that mindset shift, what made you decide to become a certified genealogist? Um, because I think that's a question I get all the time. Um, people yes. think I'm a CG. I'm not. Um, yes. And they're surprised that I'm not a CG. And I just haven't, my own personal reasons are, I just haven't had the time to pursue it. As yeah. you know, when I was president at APG, I was working full-time in sales. So how did you decide that that was something you felt you needed and or wanted? And what was the process like for you? I decided fairly early on 
after I realized what a certified genealogist was, I came into, when I started to be delve more deeply into the world of professional genealogy, then I became exposed to those speakers at national conferences and the Board for Certification of Genealogists. And, and it didn't take me very long to, to think that I wanted to move in that direction. I know some professionals who decided that they didn't want to hang out their professional shingle until they were certified. And that's a, certainly a, a valid personal choice for them. I didn't feel like I wanted to go that route. I was ready to jump in and be a professional. But I, I decided that I, I just felt like it would be a good challenge. And so it was pretty early. But I will say this. I spent, you, you know, if you're familiar with the process of becoming a certified genealogist, there's a, a variety of things you submit to your portfolio. And you submit a preliminary application, and then you have a year once you submit that preliminary to submit your final portfolio. I really lost count of how many times I submitted my preliminary application. Um, <laughs> more than one, I mean, probably five or six, or, I don't know. It took me about eight years, honestly, mm. from when I started earnestly working on working my way through the elements of the portfolio before I finally forced myself to finish it. And it is this lack of time because there's this flurry of all these other things happening in our lives. And and I will say one of the, uh, you know, I kept setting these goals. Okay, you've got a year, get it done. And it just, yeah. it was too easy to let the goals just fade away. And finally, yeah. I said, I quit I'm going to quit wasting my money putting getting on this submitting this preliminary application every year and just try and finish mm -hmm. the thing the whole portfolio and then submit mm -hmm. and that's what I did eventually but the last I would say the last year before I finally submitted my portfolio I had an accountability buddy mm, and so okay. I enlisted a genealogist friend and we get together for lunch once a month. And we have mm. been doing that for years. And so it was her responsibility to harass and hound me um, each luncheon about how much we had done and or how much I had accomplished that month towards right. reaching the goal of certification. And sometimes I would get up at 3 in the morning of the day mm. we were going to have lunch so that I could report to her how many pages I had written, how many footnotes I had composed, uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> so, Because I didn't want to show up and say I did nothing. Right. Right. Well, it's good to have accountability, buddy. So to speak to your question about why did I want to, I felt like it would uh, enhance my credentials, my professional profile. I felt like I was capable because it is a very rigorous portfolio. I felt like I was capable of doing it. And um, it's just one of those goals that I had. There are so many excellent, excellent professional genealogists who are not certified for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make them any less of a genealogist. Right, right. In my opinion. 
Yeah. And so I agree with you. So what advice would you give um, aspiring professional genealogists, kind of lessons learned from your journey up to this point? As you have through many years of being involved with APG, Association of Professional Genealogists, I have talked to so many young genealogists, uh, people who, uh, when I say young, I mean new to the profession, not necessarily young in age, but that are kind of afraid to jump in. Um, Mm -hmm. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, because so many people in genealogy doubt their skills uh, Mm -hmm. because it is such a broad field, a broad and demanding skill set that you Mm -hmm. need to have to be a well-rounded professional. I think a lot of people are hesitant because they don't know everything but that's the thing that I tell them I learn something new every single day mm-hmm. that I work at my profession y- you can't you can't have that expectation that you're going to be the perfect genealogist so you back that up with excellent methodology um, excellent knowledge of of how to uh, use tools that will mm-hmm. get you to where you need to be or help you find the answer. Um, an excellent grasp of how to access records and how to interpret records. I think mm-hmm. those are the important things. So you don't, my work for clients takes me to a lot of places where I've never researched before. But because I have those foundations of mm-hmm. how to search, where to search, and how to interpret what I'm looking for, I can be successful at that. And I think too many genealogists worry about that aspect. Yeah. So I think they need I mean, to just be able to, ready to just jump in and trust their instincts, t- trust their abilities. Yeah. I mean, I think even to this day, I still kind of worry about that because I always want to find the answer for my clients, but sometimes you can't find the answer, you know? And I feel like that's the one thing I'm still grasping with. Right. Especially when I'm doing work with enslaved uh, ancestors. Right. Or enslaved individuals. Some people cannot be found. And, you know, I always think about, well, I don't want to disappoint them. You know, they put their faith in me. But I also have the, the blessing and the curse of being on television. So when people come to me, they assume I can find it in two weeks, even though they've been looking yes. for it for 30 years. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's also that pressure. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, Another question is sort of like with genealogy, describe your kind of kind of two things, really. What's your favorite thing about genealogy? And then what's your least favorite thing about genealogy? My favorite thing is that it opens my eyes every day to new experiences. It is, uh, as I said, just said, you know, I learn something new every day. But I love how the, I love the shell of what I'm learning. I love the, it's encapsulated in history. It's encapsulated in real lives. I, I love this idea of preserving the past, of giving meaning to the lives that came before us, because without them, we wouldn't be here. Um, I, I really, I really love that, um, that preservation aspect 
of, of genealogy. And of course, almost all of us who are genealogists, I mean, I, I, I would say there's probably not, <laughs> not any genealogist who don't love the hunt, the being mm -hmm. the detective, that, that mm -hmm. thrill of, of rooting out the obscure. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, there's something very tantalizing and intriguing um, and addictive, really, about that being able to solve a mystery right. or to look for those clues. I mean, why do you, why are the, you know, detective shows so popular on television for decades right. and decades? It's because people like that idea of solving mysteries. Right, right. And so what, do, what is kind of your least favorite thing about genealogy? Well, it kind of ties into my favorite thing about preservation. And one of the least things, favorite things is, it is, is that very thing. We get caught up in the hunt mm -hmm. and we kind of lose sight of the long game, which is, okay, now we've found all this. How are we going to preserve this information or share it? And I think I'm guilty of it. And that's mm -hmm. one of my, my goals is to be more disciplined about preserving and sharing research. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that I think too many of us get too overzealous. And you see it on the internet with people just, yes, I'll accept that hint and I'll just add it a thousand people to my tree. I have no idea if they're really valid or not. And I think, I wish some, you know, we sometimes we need to slow down our process. And, and that is worrisome to me um, about the proliferation of inaccurate information just mm -hmm. everywhere on the internet. And it is kind of sad. It doesn't hinder my desire to keep pressing forward with right. performing accurate research. Um, mm -hmm. So it, and genealogy has, uh, and, and maybe this is not genealogy's fault, maybe this is just my own fault, but it has a a tremendous knack for distraction. Uh, you can't. Yes. I, I was reading an article just a few hours ago in a historical journal, and I found that the writer, and he was writing about a, a historical figure, not a famous mm -hmm. person, but a historical figure local to that area. And I was questioning some of the conclusions that this writer came to. And, and astonishingly, the writer said, there's nothing in the records about this person except what I found in newspapers. Mm. And of course, alarm bells were going off. Are you kidding me? There's all kinds of things in the records about this person. I mean, he mm -hmm. existed beyond what the newspapers picked up. Right, you know? right. And so immediately I wanted to start researching this person who I had no interest in. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to, okay, here's a deed. Here's his death certificate. You know, here, here are these things that you can find about a person beyond the easy targets. The internet right. has made so many things easy, those easy targets that I think so many of us forget to dig deeper because it's harder to dig deeper. Right. And so in doing that research on this person, are you going to contact... <laughs> the person who wrote the article um, that you read or... <laughs> See, 
see, I was thinking to myself, how far am I going to take this? <laughs> am I right. going to write a rebuttal to the article? Am I going to write privately to the author? Um, do I really have time for this when I have this project list that already, you know, I have clients I'm waiting on my wait list. I have all these other things. Why am I getting distracted and moving in this direction? Um, it's because of that love of the hunt. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. I say, it's not genealogy's fault. It's my fault, I guess. <laughs> so I'm still pondering what I'm going to do about that. Yeah, I think we all do that. I know I'm guilty of it. If I see something, some obscure fact or something come across in an email or something like that, or maybe I'm reading something else, I'm very guilty of it when I get, still get the New York Times on Sunday and I'm reading something in New York Times book review. And then all of a sudden I want to look up this person or find more information about them um, mm -hmm. or probably even have the author on the podcast. That happens a lot too, <laughs> but um, I don't think that's just something that you do. I think that's a genealogy thing because the hunt is the thrill. Now yes, writing the report for me is difficult because I like the hunt, but gathering mm -hmm. all that information into one place can be challenging. Um, so let's get into writing. So you wanted to become a writer. What do you love about writing? What do you like about it? Well, it's it's very satisfying to mm. produce a piece of writing and have it uh, take its place wherever you're planning to to send it to, um, you know, whether it's being published or you're just writing it for your own files. Writing uh, is a great source of satisfaction. And I love mm -hmm. and I love writing. I don't do enough of it. That's one of the personal goals that I have. I mean, I I used to write a lot, and then actually, writing is what catapulted me, uh, opened the doors for me as a professional. One of the very mm -hmm. when I first decided that I wanted to be a professional genealogist, and started upping the ante as far as reading more. Um, uh, delving more deeply into what I needed to do uh, to understand records and research methodologies and all of those things. One of the first things that I did was I contacted the local newspaper mm -hmm. in Albuquerque and I said, I'm a genealogist. You have a column every day on playing bridge like playing cards, Ooh. and I mm -hmm. and I like to play bridge. I used to play bridge. I don't play anymore, but it's a good game. You have a column about playing bridge every day. I guarantee you there are more people that are interested in tracing their family history than playing bridge. Let me write a genealogy column for you. Mm. And the editor said, okay. <laughs> so, so that... I started writing a weekly column for the hmm. Albuquerque newspaper. And so I, I, I knew from the get-go, I wanted my column to not be uh, dry. So I, I worked on crafting the voice that I wanted to convey in my writing. And, and that, not only having that column, not only helped me hone some skills writing skills, even though I've been writing my whole life, but I had to write really tightly, of course, because mm -hmm. you have a word limit. And But I wanted to have voice in my writing. I wanted to write, I needed to write tightly, and I wanted to convey a lot of information. I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time 
at the genealogy library looking up sources, understanding record sets, because that's what the column was about, you know, mm -hmm. Civil War pensions or probates or, you know, different types of record sets and how to research. And so um, writing was a big part of launching me, and that, that column opened a lot of doors for me. I went mm -hmm. on to start writing for um, the Ancestry used to have a, a weekly digest or weekly journal or whatever they called it it had different names and I started writing for them mm. and um, reaching a much wider audience uh, course, you know yeah. thousands of subscribers to, to ancestry and then I used writing as a catapult to uh, to in, in APG for example mm -hmm. the very yeah. first lecture I gave at a professional management conference was about writing mm. and and I, so I gave that lecture about writing, and then I was, Matt Wright, the, the, the editor for the yeah. quarterly, contacted me, and he said, take, can you take your lecture and write an article about writing for the quarterly? And so those, my earliest forays into genealogy were through writing. And I think, I think that's not going to be the path for a lot of genealogists. They're not as comfortable mm -hmm. with writing, but... For those of us who like to write, I think it's a real gateway to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more bullet points on your resume, uh, exposure yeah. to yeah. Uh, different audiences, potential clients. Yeah. It's a, it's a very important skill set. I agree. I think in my second half of my career, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, that's kind of something I thought about since I was very young. But it's very hard for me. It's a hard process. Um, I mean, writing my book was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yes. Um, to have that blank slate and to try to, you know, what am I going to write about? How do I get it? You know, and we have that, you know, I had a word count that I had to reach. But also, you know, I'd never done it before. And so the process for me was kind of haphazard, <laughs> you know, a little all over the place. I went down the rabbit hole of learning more about immigration and military records than I ever knew in my entire life. <laughs> and that was good, but also uh, challenging for me. So what was your, or what is your writing process like? Do you outline, do you have post-its, um, notes, or do you just sit down and start typing or do you write longhand? Like how do you achieve sort of your writing goals when you are writing? Well, and this is a holdover from when I was a teacher because I used to teach writing. And mm. one of the things that, that as an English teacher, we would teach would be the writing process. Now, that's, that's a process that some people think have four or five different steps, but there is a step to the writing process. And there's the, the pre-writing. And I've actually taught this in every, in every lecture I've given in the genealogy world, and I've given a lot of them about writing, mm -hmm. I always yeah. start with the writing process, which is pre-writing, writing, revision, editing, publishing. Mm -hmm. And and so I talk about those steps, and it's a circular step, or the step, steps are circular. I mean, you keep going around and around. It's not a linear thing. But I think the key is too many people skip the pre-writing stage, and they go straight to writing, and they feel like they try and write it in their heads, 
before they put it mm-hmm. down on paper. You know, when I was a teacher, I'd walk around and I'd have students sitting there and we'd talk about, you know, you do pre-writing, you make a, a cluster, you make an outline, you make notes, you do post-its, you do bullet points, however you want to do it, or you can draw a picture, you know, a story map or whatever. There's a lot of different methods for pre-writing. And we'd write in class a lot. I'd have my students, and, and if they were just sitting there staring at a blank piece of paper or staring at the computer screen, I would just come up there and I'd start tapping on the shoulder, you know, start writing, start writing. Even if you're just writing, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. If you start getting that process of taking words out of your head and putting them on paper or on your computer screen, it helps. It really does. It stimulates that process. And I think too often, we, we like I said, we just... Too many writers want to make it perfect from the get-go. They know this is not the first sentence that I want, and so they don't write anything. Mm. But if you write that first sentence, even though it's fractured, in your, in your, if you write it down, that helps. Because that's why we have that revision stage. Mm-hmm. You know, good writers will say, I'm not a good writer, I'm a good reviser. And... And when you have that freedom as a writer to write, revise, edit, write, revise, edit again and again and again, that really frees you up to stop expecting perfection from the get-go. Right, right. That's how I do every writing project. Hmm. That's so disciplined, but I like it. I mean, I'm struggling with my uh, second book. Um, and just trying to, for me, for the first one was outlining, right? I had to outline mm-hmm. what I wanted to write about genealogy because it was a comprehensive guide. And I'm like, okay, what does that really mean? So I think the outline kind of works better for me, I guess, in the pre-writing stage because it gives yes. me some structure and sense of order, right? And so I'm outlining my second book now. Um, actually, I've outlined two books, um, two and a half. I'm not done with the other one I'm working on. And that just seems to help me. And I do have big post-it notes around my apartment with dates and research and names and things like that because I'm a very visual learner. So that does help me. But I do appreciate you walking through the writing process. Well, I, I, I use yeah. outlining too. Mm, I, okay. I, that's, you know, if it's a big project, I do outlining. And that's the beauty of having word processing is because you can move things around as you go along. I am, I, you know, a lot of people start in the middle and Mm. put the beginning and the end later. Sometimes I do that, but I usually start at the beginning because I like the beginning of what I'm writing, whether it's an essay, a column, an article, whatever. I feel like my beginning frames what comes next. And Mm -hmm. I, it's almost sort of like an outline in your beginning, in your introduction. So I usually do write from beginning to end, but that doesn't mean I don't go back and change it a lot because a lot of times what happens in the middle, it it shifts what you thought you were going to write about. But mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea to start with that beginning, get into the middle. If it's if it's if it's going a different direction, let it go that way. You can always go back in the revision stage and change that beginning to match what's the mm-hmm. best part in your middle. So, yeah, you have that freedom to be flexible when you use the writing process. 
Right. I agree with that. And in your writing, have you written both fiction and nonfiction or have you only focused on one? I used to write a lot of fiction just for myself. But since I've been a professional genealogist, it's been basically 100% nonfiction. And nonfiction is hard to write because you really have to be accountable for what you're saying or what you're writing. (laughs) Because there's people like us who will read that and say, wait, wait a minute, that's not right. (laughs) So if you're writing nonfiction and you put into writing, well, this record set, you know, all those records were lost. You better be really sure they were all lost. So nonfiction is hard and time-consuming because there's all this self-fact-checking mm-hmm. that you have to go through. A hundred percent, well, a thousand percent agree. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was one of my biggest concerns with my book was, okay, the genealogist is going to be looking at it. They're going to, they're definitely going to tell me what I got wrong, <laughs> not what I got right. Um, right. And then just going through all the information constantly, constantly, um, and you're on a deadline with the publisher. They want to get the book out, but you want to get, you want to hold on to that baby of yours. At least I did until it's absolutely perfect. And you just have to, I had to let go that, you know, there will be some mistakes. There will be some things that aren't perfect. And, you know, that was rough for me. And I find it very interesting that you said that fiction or excuse me, nonfiction is harder than fiction. I've never thought about it like that, but I agree with what you said. Because I always thought fiction would be harder to write. But I like that. I mean, you're absolutely right because you're held accountable and you have to make sure you get things right. That's why you really have to be sure or keep in mind as a nonfiction writer who your audience is. You want to think about that because it, and if you're writing about genealogy, you know, if you're writing, if you're writing a, an article about some research you've done and you're submitting it to a a local or a state genealogical society, for example. Okay, that audience is different than a broad mass market audience. That audience is different than an audience who are beginning genealogists. And so you, you have to always keep in mind who you're writing for or who you're targeting. Now, certainly there'll be crossover. I mean, there'll be you know, people, all different kinds of people coming in with completely different backgrounds. But you do want to always keep that in mind. What is this potential reader looking? Right. And right. and you have to keep that in mind, even to a very basic level of word choice. Mm-hmm. Are you using words that, for example, a beginning genealogist is not going to understand? Right. Are you talking about, you know, the genealogical proof standard and you don't define it uh, right. it's not in the, the the glossary or whatever you don't define it at the beginning but if you're if you're talking about that and you're writing an article for on board the board for certification of genealogists newsletter they all know what that means and you right. don't have to define it so that's why it's really important to keep your audience in mind and when I when I wrote the column for the newspaper my audience was general readers who were interested in genealogy. They weren't mm-hmm. professionals. They were hobbyists or just interested 
people who don't hadn't even started. So you you have to keep that in mind. Right. And so you have written a book, um, mm-hmm. Just Do It, Crazy or Not. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that was a client project. Um, so how did you get involved uh, in that project? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's kind of a, a wacky story. I was on an airplane leaving Albuquerque. It was a 6.30 a.m. flight. I was flying to Dallas and then from Dallas on to Charleston, South Carolina. And I got on the plane and there was no one sitting next to me. And generally, you know, you're all excited. No one's sitting next to you, you know. <laughs> you can you can spread out. And so, but the very last person to get on the plane was this old man who sat next to me. Hmm. And I'm not being unkind by saying he was an old man. He was an old man. He was over 80 at that time. But he, you know, was quite spry. And he was wearing a cap that had a uh, the insignia of a military of a ship on his okay. cap. And so normally, I don't talk to my seatmates very much on flights. Most people don't, you know. I mean, it's, I've noticed people start to chat when you're standing up getting ready to deboard the plane, <laughs> that's when you say something to you know, the person that sat next to you for two hours and you've been totally silent. But so, I, you know, I, I thought, oh, why not? I like old people. It's curious. I wonder where he's going. Um, and so we started talking. And over the next, it's just about an hour and 45 minute flight to Dallas. Uh, he Seriously, he did not stop talking for the entire flight. And my life changed because of that conversation with that man. Mm. In that span of time, I learned that he was a 30-year veteran of the Navy. Mm. He was a Pearl Harbor survivor. Wow. He did two tours in Vietnam. He was a marathon runner. He was a rancher. He was a pilot. I mean, it just went on and on. And I thought, is this person for real? Right. And so so we had this lovely, lovely conversation. And, of course, one of the things that he did was he was in the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s. And so we talked about that experience. And I had said to him, well, I just recently ordered my own father's Civilian Conservation Corps records from the uh, uh, National Archives of Personnel Center in St. Louis. And he said, oh, I'd love to have my records. And so I said, give me your address. I will send you the information on how to order. And so that's what I got his address. And we we visited. Actually, when we deplaned, he had to transit to a different terminal. I took him to the next terminal because um, I had a longer wait than he did. And and the, the salient part of this is I said, well, where are you going today? And that's how the conversation started. He says, I'm going to Hawaii. And I mm-hmm. said, have you been there before? Oh, many times. And as it turned out, this was December the 7th, 2006. It was the 65th wow. anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Wow. And he was going there for that day for the commemoration and as well as to be at a book signing because another author had written a book about one of the submarines that he had been on the USS Gudgeon 
And so they were going to have a book signing there. And wow, he lived in Colorado, uh, about four hours north of where I lived. And so I just kept in touch with him. Uh, we would stop every time we would go north. We would stop and visit him and his wife on the ranch. They had a cattle ranch. And the stories, he was a natural born storyteller. And the stories were astonishing that he told 11 wartime patrols on submarines during World War II, all kinds of adventures. And one day we were out actually throwing hay to the cattle. And he said, Mary, would you write my life story? Wow. How could I say no? Right, yeah. So for the next several years, um, I would go up there and um, record him telling mm. stories. And um, and so we had a, a, a lot of stories, remarkable stories about the adventures in his life. And then I started compiling it into a book and we published it. It's all in his voice. The book is his voice. I wrote it. Mm. I compiled it. I edited it. But it's his voice. And that was the, ch it wasn't that actually that hard to capture his voice because he has, he had such a natural gift for telling stories. So that was mm. a big diversion. Um, I was a working professional, you know, mom, all those things. And I somehow fit that into my world. And it, and it changed my life, that relationship with that man that I met by chance on Pearl Harbor Day. Mm. And uh, I was, like everyone that knew him, I am honored to have known him. Irvin mm. Horncall was his name. Mm. That's a great story. Wow. Because I think, as you said, people, you don't talk to people on planes. And then I often find a lot of times if people tell you, or if you tell them what you do as a genealogist, they tend to start asking a lot of questions yes. <laughs> throughout the plane ride. But that's a that's such a great story, and I'm so glad I asked you about it and that you shared it because it just kind of makes my heart warm to to hear something like that. So for you, one last question: You have a lot of projects going on right now. I'm assuming. Um, is there anything that's new and exciting you'd like to share with our listeners? I am trying to be more disciplined with my own writing. Mm -hmm. uh, I am working on a book. And it's going to be a small book, but I am working on it. And I want to uh, work through this book. Um, it's funny because I listened to your podcast that you did with our friend Mark Lowe. Mm -hmm. And one of the things Mark said was he was talking about Kentucky court order books, about how they're mm -hmm. rich with information and so many people don't take the time to look at them. And that's been one of my personal roadblocks is some Kentucky ancestors and um, I decided one of the things I had to do to thoroughly research these ancestors was to I had to read these court documents page by page and I decided well as long as I'm reading them I'm going to index them so I'm so I'm my goal is to finish that uh, this year uh, indexing a number of these court record books and publish it. And then I, I want to start publishing more of my own personal research on my own family, but also a lot of the research that I do for clients. I have so much research in my files and 
I actually I just did a collaboration with the client. We submitted two articles to uh, the New Mexico Genealogical Society Journal, and I think mm-hmm. getting getting this research out of my files into the hands of other researchers is is an important thing to make time for. I'm trying to be more disciplined about that. And for Kentucky, which county are you researching in, or is it going to be multiple counties for this book? In Kentucky, I'm doing Nicholas County. Okay, okay. And uh, the county was formed in 1800, so the earliest records are these court order books, and so I'm, I'm reading through them and finding lots of mentions of the people I'm looking for, mm-hmm. but nothing earth-shattering, but the, one of the... the the uh, benefits to these court order books is particularly in the early days of this particular county you know, you know the main objective was well setting up the county running it you know creating order but they were always making roads roads were a big deal and they mm-hmm. were always uh, having surveyors go out and they were be all groups of neighbors and so now i have a whole collection of neighbors of hmm. my ancestors who lived in that area because they'd be assigned to survey a road together. You know, they, these were the people that lived near each other. So those are collateral people that I need to go back and research all of these neighbors for clues hmm. about my ancestors. So I think that's one of the one of the big bonuses about these record books. Yeah, I remember Mark talking about that. And I do feel like court records sometimes are often... I mean, people use them in their research, but I do feel sometimes people are intimidated by them as well. In a sense, they don't understand the legalese or, you know, it's there's just a lot of stuff you have to sift through to actually get to what, what you want. At least that's my opinion, right? Yeah, that's the thing with court records. And, and I've been to Kentucky, the state archives, a couple the last two years, and they've and I've looked at some of these case files. And they bring mm-hmm. out these boxes full of these, you know, 220-year-old you know, pieces of paper bundled up with, tw- you know, string. And and they're awesome to look through, but they are a bear to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I think genealogists are perpetually rushed. There's nothing that we do that we're not trying to do in a hurry, particularly if we're in an archive. And... Right. <laughs> And it's just, it's just, it's just maddening to see, you know, these these court cases. And and if we had the time to sit, mm-hmm. instead of just taking pictures one by one of every page and then moving on, and then I'll read this later. If you had the time to read it, then you might realize, oh my gosh, this references another case that it's not going to have my ancestors' name on it, but they're going to be in in that case. And mm-hmm. you don't have time to go and get it. You find that out two months later when you're reading and looking through all the images you took. But yes, the court documents, you know, as you know, they're they're just loaded with terrific nuggets of information. But they are intimidating and you got to hunt for them. Right, right. Yeah, even as a lawyer, I don't really particularly like going through the records myself, uh, even though I do. But I'm like, can we just get to the point and knock out all this other stuff in the beginning? But anyway, um, well, thank you so much, Mary. I really enjoyed our conversation. I just, I love the story uh, that you shared about the gentleman you met on the plane and your love of writing um, has actually inspired me. So I appreciate that uh, because I know as a writer, I get stuck sometimes, a lot of times um, in trying to get my second book uh, done. So thank you so much for being on Conversations with Kenyatta. 
You're welcome. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash kenyattadb, and on Twitter at kenyattadb. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.